This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jai Paul Valenza. And I'm Dave DeBoat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Topps Friendly Markets on May 14th is it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And welcome to the program. This is Dave Debo. Later on, we will be joined by Bridget Jai Paul Valenza and Jay Moran, bringing you a series of guests to discuss this important topic. We're glad to have this program on the air. It is an unapologetic discussion of the top shooting, what led to it, and really what to do about it afterwards. The name Buffalo Next, I think, summarizes so much of it all. Where does the community go from here? Over the next several days, weeks, really as long as it takes, we will bring in guests to discuss exactly that. What is next for the community? We would like to have you on board for this, by the way. If you have comments or questions that uh, you'd like to get to us, you can do that right now through our app, the WBFO app. Just hit the Talk to Us button, and we'll be able to get your comments incorporated on air here as part of this discussion. I'd like to begin the program with a jump back to Sunday night, the day after the shooting. One night later, there was an interfaith service at the Macedonian Baptist Church on East North Street. I want to be clear that while I am so glad that we are all here together, our goal today is not for another kumbaya moment. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. We need sustainable movement. And then after that, speaker after speaker that night spoke of the action required. Some came up and talked about better education, some about the need for more anti-racism efforts, business investment, jail reform, better policing. And then to kind of sum it all up, the Reverend Julian Armand Cook came forth with some words that really might as well be the guiding premise for this program and all discussion after that. Point to somebody and tell them where there is no truth. There can be no healing. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. Point to somebody and tell them, tell the truth. Right, my grandmother says, shame the devil. You get rid of evil if you tell the truth. So it's uncomfortable, but these truths must be spoken. And growth is always uncomfortable. And the Reverend Julian Armand Cook is with us for the discussion now. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. The remarks during that service really kind of got to me, framed, I think, a lot of the discussion. What, to your mind, is the number one uncomfortable, most uncomfortable truth that has to be told here? I think the most uncomfortable truth that has to be told here is that this is not happenstance. This is not a coincidence. This is not a tragedy in the sense of something that we could not control, but that 
but that human beings, that the way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that tops market and the conditions that existed in the community before and that by that market. By that you're saying basically systemic racism. Systemic racism. Yes. Is Buffalo in any way unique or is the system nationwide? Oh, this system is nationwide. I think Buffalo has a distinct way, as do all cities and all locations, has a distinct way in which it is represented here in our community. But it is present everywhere. As Reverend Barber, William Barber says very often, he said, the shooter has been apprehended, but the killer is still on the loose. So what do we do? I, I, I've heard a lot of talk of anti-racism education. I've heard a lot of talk about just imaging the, the the idea that hate has no home here. Sure. I'm almost about to say that that's the kumbaya moment you spoke of. That's the that's the hollow words, no? Those are the hollow words. That's the kumbaya moment. I think we have to start as you played in those clips by telling the truth, by being honest about our history, our collective history, and our various roles that we've played in that, right? And that can be very difficult to do because it often rubs up it rubs against our mythology that we build around our exceptionalism, not just as America, but also as a community. And it can be difficult to tell those truths alongside the myths that we believe about ourselves. Talk about the myths. What's myth number one? Myth number one, this whole notion that we were created as a society where equity was central. Well, Mm, that's questionable. For, for some, maybe. For some, maybe. But then when you think about the importation, the stealing and the importation of, 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 of African slaves, the forced labor, uh, the, the sexual abuse, all of that is a part of our story, too. We need to tell those truths together. And a part of our story today, because I can hear people already saying, maybe skeptics out there, Reverend, that was the 1700s. That's right. That, that has nothing to do with what happened at Tops today. Buck back against that for me. Take a drive down Jefferson Street. That's the first thing I would say to you. I would invite you to go and live and sit in the heart of that community and try to explain to me why the moment you cross Main Street, the conditions of life change so starkly. That's where we need to start. So do we need to treat and in the way I'm asking the question, I'm almost giving you the answer. In, in, <laughs> but, but rhetorically speaking, do we need to treat the symptoms, disinvestment along Jefferson or do we need to somehow treat the broader problem, a lack of recognition of the role of racism currently in society? I think we need to do both, quite honestly. I think we need to do both at the same time, right? There has to be some level of triage or we're going to continue to experience these these types of shootings. We're going to continue to experience um, the disinvestment in the community that we've seen. And black people in our city are going to continue to suffer. But we also must do the comprehensive work necessary, right? Uh, this the, the 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 white nationalist rhetoric, the white supremacist rhetoric that is the bedrock of of the attack that we saw has to be dealt with as well. So I think we can do both things at the same time if we follow a triage model. Governor Hochul and other politicians have proposed uh, a crackdown on some of the rhetoric that's pushed out via social media. Sure. Step number one, but probably not the only thing you have in mind. Probably not. I think that's an important step. But I also think if we do that work while not addressing the issues, the history of redlining on the east side of Buffalo, if we don't 
confront the fact that this is the only grocery store for two miles and why that is the case. If we don't confront the fact that leaders in the community have consistently approached uh, other food corporations about moving into that area and have consistently been told by those corporations that we don't want to come to the east side. Until we deal with that also, we're really just sort of throwing crumbs. Okay, so do we find a black entrepreneur who will open a supermarket? I think we do that. Uh, but I also know that the realities of this country are that there aren't that many. There are not enough uh, black uh, food producers and corporations to really make the type of change that we need. This is going to take a comprehensive effort. It's going to take investment in black entrepreneurs, but it's also going to take whites to uh, release some control over these areas, too. Tell me more about that. When you say release control, what kind of things have to happen? Well, I think we have to stop with the excuses, right? These notions that um, black people, I, I know for several corporations, well, we don't know if we have the if we have the audience in the black community. Well, that's not true. I, I know many congregants and folks in my community who drive miles to go to grocery stores where they can get better quality food. Part of the, re the reality of this TOPS location, right, was, yes, it was an epicenter of community. It was where a lot of my congregants went to pay their bills or get uh, get their prescriptions. But the quality of that tops within itself was often problematic. It was not the best tops in the city because it can't be. Because if it's being used by that many people, there's a need to consistently push out food and quality gets compromised sure. in that process. Right. Julian Armand Cook is here, Reverend Julian Armand Cook from Macedonia Baptist Church on East North Street. You guys started out on Jefferson, didn't we you? We did. We started out on Jefferson Avenue, yes. How many people in your congregation lost people they knew? Oh, I would say that this tragedy touched every member of my congregation. Somebody knew uh, Officer Salters, who was a security guard there. Uh, so many people, Mother Young, these are Deacon Patterson. So many of my seniors had groceries delivered to them by Deacon Patterson. This touched every member of my congregation. And I want to jump back to the idea you, you, you spoke of right at the top, that we need to speak about the evil of racism. We do. These people were targeted. They were targeted, and they were easily targeted because of the segregation lines that exist in our city. So let me go back to the premise. What do we do? If, if it's kind of a, a two-pronged problem, overall systemic racism, and then all the symptoms that come from that disease, let's not look at the symptoms. Let's look at that big one for a second. Mm -hmm. How do we get white folks to admit that they're racist or to acknowledge that there needs to be a change? Because I'm not entirely self-aware, but if you ask me, I'll say, no, I'm not racist, although I know that I have older relatives who have really old beliefs. Mm. Um, I know that in a lot of ways, there are things in me and in anyone that they are probably not aware of. So how do you get the conversation going? How do you get people to confront racism? Because I'm pretty sure, unless you're you're hanging in the same circles and writing the same things that the shooter did. If you ask a white person, are you racist? The answer is going to be, of course not. That's right. Dialogue would stop right then and there, wouldn't it? It would. I think that we have to demystify uh, what uh, what a race what racism is right? We have to be able to talk about what it means for us to participate in structural racism without 
having to be someone who goes out and enacts white supremacist violence. I think that's part of the problem with the way we even talk about racism in this country, right? When we talk about racism as the the represent, and even in this instance with the Topps Market shooting, racism as uh, something horrific happens, a gunman comes into a Topps Market and targets black people. That is certainly uh, an extreme example mm. of racism. But there are also the ways in which we consistently participate in the perpetuation of anti-black of anti-black policies, of harm in communities, of of not seeking the flourishing of black communities. That's what I want. That's what I want most white people to be able to talk about. So the question should not be, are you white person racist? The question should be, what have you done lately? That's right. What have you done lately? And what are you doing now? And what are you planning to do tomorrow? And that brings us, I guess, to the symptoms part of it. What little things can be done? If if we're successful at addressing the systemic stuff, the atmospheric stuff at the very top of the page, what are some of the recommendations underneath that that you want to see for the community? I, number one, want to see our white brothers and sisters help us. Those who want to say, like you said, I want to do something. Sure. I want them to help us to push for investment in this community. And that's more than like the relief efforts that are underway that's now. That's more than charity. Yeah. Right, right. I hear you. That's more than charity. That's about having a reliable business that hires and employs black people from the community. We cannot deal with this issue until we deal with the fact that there is a stark uh, uh, wealth divide in our com- between Buffalo, West Side of Buffalo, and North Buffalo and East Buffalo. So we have to be able to talk about that. We have to be able to deal with that. We need white people to partner with us to demand that there be another grocery store, more grocery options in this community. It is not, and and I want to push back on those who say we live in a food desert. I've even used that terminology. It's problematic. We live in a food apartheid. Deserts are created naturally. This was cr- structurally created, and we can do something about it. There are bodegas. That's right. There are bodegas. Uh, they do not. They are often more expensive. Okay. And they often don't provide the best quality. All right. So, what would it take for huh, theoretically a Wegmans? Yeah. To come on in. <laughs> I think it would take a a big push from the African American community. I think it would take a push from our city, from our city government and state leaders. But I also think if the white community stepped up in Buffalo and said, we're going to work until we see another grocery store here. And we care about that because we care about grocery stores in our community. Uh, And what affects you affects us as well. That's when I think we'll see change. And that's a business proposition that is supportable. That's right. That's a business proposition that is absolutely supportable that we could begin working on tomorrow to change the lives of folks in Buffalo. What else? I know your church is involved through Houghton College with education efforts in the community. That's right. A way to bring college campus, the college campus from Houghton to the inner city of Buffalo. That's right. That's not necessarily anti-racist, but that is certainly giving opportunity in an area where opportunity is needed. And it's shifted. That's right. It's shifting the resources, right? If we've got the concentration of resources in one community and we've got lack in the other, what we have to do as a part of that shifting, right, as you talked about, we have to be able to reallocate resources so that they are spread about equitably. And that's what I think the Houghton College program does. It takes those resources, those wonderful, amazing academic resources that were offered in Allegheny County, where I was a student, and it says, if we want to see real change, we're going to have to prepare the next generation of leaders in this community. Let's shift those resources uh, into the heart of the city. What about education in general? You just spoke of uh, secondary education. What about about the schools? 
Uh, is there a role here for Buffalo Public Schools? I know they have uh, an entire curriculum based on making sure they are culturally sensitive. I know that they are trying, obviously, to educate uh, all communities about the needs of all communities. Is there enough education in Buffalo Public Schools for your for your uh, your needs? I don't think so. I think I think Buffalo Public Schools uh, have not done the best job historically, and that's difficult for me to say as a child of public education. Uh, they they've not done the best job, and I think all of that. I think a lot of that has to do with teachers who are exhausted. I think that has to do with a lack of resources and investment in the Buffalo Public Schools. Right. The reality is, you cannot talk about the Buffalo Public Schools without talking about race and racism. Uh, we have a population in the Buffalo Public Schools that is com- primarily comprised of Afri- of students of color. And then on top of that, you also have uh, issues of poverty in the school system. So until we treat those things together and look at those things together and find a comprehensive plan, we won't be able to move very far on that. Is that the role of schools or should they just be educating the kids? Again, skeptics would say you're you're calling on a really tall order there for a district that is financially strapped. Yeah. I think I think I think we have to do it. Uh quite honestly, I'm I'm a teacher myself. I know how difficult it is as a college professor to teach a student who has not had breakfast in the morning or who doesn't know if when they go home they'll be evicted from their apartment. Uh so if you want to change the quality of education, if you want to change the way in which students receive the material, and uh, are able to take that material and apply it to their life and in, and increase their life outcomes, then we have to do something about those things together. Real quickly, is is lack of parental involvement a racist trope or is that part of the equation? Oh, I think it's a racist trope. Absolutely. I think there's even statistic, there, there are even statistics that show that African-American male parents in particular spend more time with their children than any other race. So I think that's a trope. I think it's an excuse. I think it's a way that we turn personal responsibility back on to black people. What we need to do is think about systems and structures. All right. In the remaining moments here, uh, are you optimistic? Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful, but I'm less interested in finding hope and much more interested in being a hope. And I hope that there's some other folks who will join me in that. And lastly, uh, in the broadest sense you can articulate it, what does Buffalo need? (laughs) Buffalo needs to tell the truth, but Buffalo also needs to commit to doing the work necessary to being better to living up to being the city of good neighbors. If that's who we claim to be, let's live up to it. All right. Reverend Cook, thanks for being here. Thank you. Reverend Julian Armand Cook is the reverend and pastor at Macedonia Baptist Church on East North Street. You heard him earlier in the program mention that they started out on Jefferson Avenue, and and there's immense connections to the community there. This is a conversation that will continue. We'll have you back, I promise. I look forward to it. And it also continues in just a moment. We're looking today at a lot of different aspects of this discussion. Coming up next, Bridget Jaipal Valenza with D. John Hall. And later in the program, Jay Moran with Richard Cummings. We'll be right back. Funding for the WBFO's News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. Sponsorship of WBFO's Women's News Desk is provided by Catholic Health, the right way to care.
A hit-and-run cover-up quickly snowballs in complexity. Watch Guilt, Episode 1, on Masterpiece, tonight at 9, on WNED-PBS. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. We're joined today by Dijon Hall, community advocate. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. Um, first off, h- how are you doing? <laughs> Interesting question. Um, I'm surviving. and I think that uh, that is enough for now. Is it is it really enough for now for the people who live in the communities that are affected by? Well, um, as someone who lost a family member in the the tragic incident that took place on that Saturday, uh, for me it is enough. I think there are a lot of people who are ready for action, and by all means they should move forward for that. But some of us uh, who have been doing this work um, for a very long time might be a little fatigued by this. Um, and so surviving is enough so long as we don't remain in uh, ruin. Uh, some would say don't rest in the ruin, and I'm I'm not going to. I just need a, a pause. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it is heartbreaking, but it also makes you angry. Very much so. Um, and I think that anger has been permeating throughout the community for a very long time, even prior to this incident, because the uh, the buildup to this moment has been long and, and slow. So what do you think brought us here? Hmm. So if, if uh, you know, if folks have read the manifesto of uh, the shooter, then they would know that this this guy chose Buffalo uh, and particularly that tops because of the 14208 zip code. Uh, that being that it had the highest concentration of black folks closest to where he lived outside of New York City. Um, and that's important because you don't get that high level of concentration without uh, a buildup of policies and laws that make it so that a city like Buffalo could be the sixth, se- sixth most segregated city in the nation. Um, I mean, there's there's a host of reasons why that is. You know, we could talk about redlining and restrictive covenants. We could talk about over-policing. Um, we can talk about food apartheid. There's just... a a long and slow, deliberate uh, move to, I guess, suppress in some ways uh, the black population in this city and this county. So would we be safe in saying that Buffalo is a segregated city? Absolutely. I mean, data has shown this. We are the sixth most segregated city, uh, according to one study. Third poorest city. Uh, And when you combine... Uh, that high concentration of poverty uh, with our current segregation, it's hard to to see a way in which that can change unless resources begin to shift towards uh, those populations who have been confined to particular areas. 
So we're talking about redlining. We're talking about mm -hmm. um, keeping a particular population, say, ensconced or encased in a designated area. That's right. So beyond why that happened, how does one fix that? Hmm. Well, very good question. Um, <laughs> and I think about Ta-Nehisi Coates and his case for reparations, which was written some years ago, I want to say around 2016, 17. Um, I think that lays out how we got to this moment very clearly. The stuff that you read in that article happened here in Buffalo. I mean, it's no surprise to me, at least as a black Buffalonian, that 85 percent of the black population resides on the east side. It's no surprise that when I was born, the average income for black Americans was thirty nine thousand dollars. And here we are 32 years later, and it's only increased by three thousand dollars. It's no surprise that black unemployment remains in the double digits, just as it was 32 years ago when I was born. Um, and it's no surprise that, you know, when we look at 51 census tracts that say that there's uh, no uh, grocery store uh, that's accessible to them. All 51 of those census tracts live in, uh, uh, reside in the east side. Uh, that is our reality. But it doesn't have to be, right? The laws that led to this moment, whether it be the Federal Highways Act, the way that the FHA or Federal Housing Act was implemented, and how that affected us, can be undone with I think, a deliberate process of truth, reconciliation, and reparation. That is our pathway forward. I think I heard Reverend Cook say that, you know, we need to tell the truth and shame the devil. And I think that that is what this moment demands of us. We cannot continue to let ourselves rest in this area of complacency. Um, I would submit that normalcy in America is uh, pretty much akin to a type of peace that Dr. King actually uh, rejected in one of his speeches. He described that type of peace as being boiled down to stagnant complacency with deadening passivity. That is what we have lived in, but that is not where we need to go moving forward. So you talked a little bit about um, food apartheid. Mm-hmm. In the wake of this tragedy, there was and is currently a huge step up in the community to bring food in and have mental health resources for those who are there. Uh, in a recent tweet, you did say free food and mental health counseling is not a response to white supremacy. No. Explain that. Well, because I think for far too long, we've looked at white supremacy from the lens of overt acts of racism, right? We view it well, as if the, the white uh, robes of Klansmen are the face of white supremacy. In today's times, that is not the case. It simply isn't. Uh, when we picture white supremacy, I would submit we should be picturing things like the Blue Lives Matter flag. We should be picturing things like Evans Bank logo or Bank of America logos uh, because the way that they've systematically redlined or gave out predatory lending contributes to white supremacy today. We should be looking at, you know, why it is that Wegmans or Whole Foods only puts grocery stores in specific zip codes, knowing fully well the economic bleed. Uh, that that term basically means uh, the deliberate um, and slow drain of resources from particular zip codes, uh, knowing that 
that is what has happened to zip codes like 142111, 142115, 142208 uh, is what led to this moment in also, simultaneously, the rationale as to why Wegmans refuses to put uh, a grocery store in those zip codes because they don't earn enough, because there isn't high enough density. Uh, if we don't begin to look at it as a systemic issue with benevolent folks being the everyday perpetrators of white supremacy, then we will completely miss the point and remain in this place where truth goes unspoken. So let's talk about the everyday, the everyday folk. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people out there who call themselves allies. Mm -hmm. They they are allies, and every person needs an ally. So what do you say to our allies then? What do they need to do in order to be able to assist in changing things? Yeah, I mean, there's. There's a difference, I think, in being an ally versus trying to be a hero. And that needs to be lifted up. I mean, there is a, a notion that if I am standing up uh, to uh, white supremacy by marching in the streets, by speaking out on, you know, media, then I am doing the work of an ally. And a lot of times, some of those folks are not actually doing the deeper work. They're not at their kitchen table calling out their loved ones because that would mean confronting those closest to you. They're they're not doing the reading. Uh, you know, they're not looking at your you know James Baldwin, your Malcolm X, your Dr. King, and thinking those uh, and being critical about how they engage those works. And they're also taking up sometimes a lot of space that should go to black and brown voices who are on the ground every day living that reality and have an idea of what needs to be done. I'm a firm believer that the greatest solutions to our issues come from those who are most deeply impacted. So the Thanksgiving table is, is it for you? It is one part of it. Also stepping up and stepping back, you know, it's, it's knowing when to show up and when to step back. You talk a lot also about leadership and mm -hmm. what people in power can do. Um, Biden was here. <laughs> President Biden was here. Um, mm -hmm. And you were a, a bit critical of his visit. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> two reasons, right? So this is not the first summer in which my family has had to to mourn. Um, you know, last summer we lost a four-year-old uh, cousin to gun violence in the Ferry Projects. And then this summer we lost uh, my uncle through marriage, uh, Deacon Hayward Patterson. Um, in I'm both sorry. times— I'm so sorry. In, in both times, the way that folks in positions of respectability and power uh, have responded have been, um, you know, calls for love, unity— and some form of addressing gun violence. Uh, gun violence, to me, seems to be much more of a symptom than a cause. And for far too all, uh, long, I would say that we've been branding gun violence as the cause. It's not the cause alone. Uh, having a gun or access to a gun is not what led this shooter to pick the 14208 zip code. 
it only gave him the means to carry out what he had meticulously planned. Um, now, Biden, he <laughs> he imagines this country uh, that I just I'm sorry to say I don't think it exists. It would be easy and convenient for us to fall back into the myth of American exceptionalism. But the fact of the matter is, since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed and it has not skipped a day. There has never been a day in American history where racial violence has not existed. And I say that with the understanding that violence isn't limited to, you know, fighting or to shooting. Violence takes various forms. It could be mental I mean, we recognize that in domestic violence or intimate partner violence. It can be spiritual. Uh, we recognize that in the way that Christianity was used during slave times. And it could be economic, right? That's what redlining is. Uh, that is what food apartheid is. And until we recognize violence to be that expansive, we will continuously rob ourselves of the truth. And that is that America, since its beginning, has carried out racial violence. And until our presidents, our mayors, our state senators, our U.S. senators, our House of Reps, our state reps begin to speak along those lines and call for real truth and reconciliation processes uh, that come with some form of redress, we will remain in this moment. We are speaking with John Hall, community advocate, uh, about recent events. Um, what does that look like? What does reparations, mm. what do reparations look like? Well, I, I think we first should back up and, and talk about what truth and reconciliation looks like before we even get to a place of what uh, reparations look like. And, you know, South Africa is an example of what a truth commission can look like. And that is pulling people from every facet of society to talk about the horrors of uh, what has taken place in any particular country in America. That means talking about not just slavery, but its legacy, talking about Jim Crow, talking about modern tactics, uh, including mass incarceration, including the school to prison pipeline, and including things like redlining and restrictive covenants and predatory lending and student loan debt. Um, until we can do that, in com combination with, you know, why it is major corporations choose the suburbs for their headquarters or why they choose specific zip codes to put, uh, you know, the healthiest options for food um, or address environmental racism. Um, we have to, to come up with a commission, a court-like proceeding where those things are talked about openly and explored. And then we can begin to talk about what reparations can look like because reparations can take various forms. The most obvious, you know, folks talk about direct checks, but there are other things. There are, you know, aid for purchasing homes, fixing credit. There's debt relief. There's so many different ways and forms reparations can take place. And I think that those ideas should be explored only once we have the data, once we have the truth and reconciliation process set before legislators so they can make an appropriate decision. Do you think that our elected leaders right now are ready for that conversation? Absolutely not. I mean, when you look at um, – first off, we have to be honest about how our elected leaders get chosen, right? 
they're chosen through, of course, popular vote in any particular subdivision of, you know, the city. In this case, I'm thinking about common council. I'm thinking about districts. Uh, I'll just lift up Fillmore, for example. It's shaped like a U for a reason, right? It has been gerrymandered. It, it, and most of our districts have been gerrymandered for specific reasons, either to keep someone in power or to keep someone from gaining power. And that is another form of how white supremacy remains intact. And so when our leaders are chosen through mechanisms meant to keep that same ideology that's been passed down through generations in power, we cannot honestly rely on them uh, in their good faith to address the issue. Um, so, no, I don't really have faith in our leaders uh, because they're not leading. I mean, they're the ones that have drawn the maps. They're the ones that keep themselves in power. It's just it, – I'll stop there. I will say this, though, um, uh, of truth. Um, you know, truth confrontation can be a difficult thing. And, you know, uh, one of my intellectual mentors, <laughs> someone who I read often, James Baldwin, says – uh, those who never suffer may never grow. And until we get to a place where we suffer through exploring the truth, we'll never grow. I would be remiss if I didn't ask then the obligatory question, what's next? <laughs> well, I think if enough of us call for, uh, you know, that sort of truth and reconciliation process, something formalized, um, then we can begin the next steps of imagining what this nation was meant to be. Uh, you know, our founders called, uh, you know, this a place where folks, uh, you know, have equal rights or uh, endowed with inalienable rights. Um, but until we talk through those things, until we imagine, you know, what it means to support Black people, what it means to support Asian populations, what it means to support Latinx folks, um, we will never live up to that moral debt. We will never pay our moral debts, and we will never be the America that we were meant to be. Uh, but we can do that by standing together, talking to one another, not past one another, being honest about our positions, and working toward an equitable, diverse, and inclusive country. There's hope, then. There is always hope. Probability is one thing, but possibility is another, and the possibility certainly exists. Um, right now, I think the probability is low, but it can go higher as we begin to take those steps. Jean, thank you so much for joining us in our show today, um, our inaugural show today. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. And... Um, we certainly hope to have you back on again. <laughs> I'll be honored. Thank you. <laughs> um, you are listening to Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for joining us. Coming up is Jay Moran. Watch, listen, engage, play, and learn with Buffalo Toronto Public Media Stations and our weekly newsletter, The List. Sign up to receive the email at wned.org and find out the best shows to watch, the great music to listen to, the important news you can't miss, and the many ways you can engage with our public media family. Sign up now at wned.org.
Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If Our Water Could Talk, Erie County Fair, two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED PBS, now available on YouTube. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. The shootings at the Tops Market on Jefferson Avenue, of course, has disrupted business activity, to say the least, on the east side of Buffalo. Here to talk a little bit more about how things are right now and what we could be doing moving forward, Richard Cummings, the treasurer of the Black Chamber of Commerce of Western New York and also with American-rated cable and communications. Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Thank you for the invite. Uh, let's before we talk about solutions and things like that moving forward. Let's just talk about the Black Chamber of Commerce uh, for us just a little bit. What's the mission? Well, our mission is to help uh, Black businesses um, gain more uh, contract opportunity and and profitability. Um, we concentrate on the businesses in the Western New York area, and that's our number one mission. Uh, also, to promote um, uh, circulating the black dollar in our community uh, with community uh, residents uh, spending their money for businesses in our community and also uh, black businesses doing businesses with each other. I know this has a somewhat obvious answer, but at the same time, it's the question that needs to be asked. Do East Side businesses face specific obstacles? Oh, yes. There are plenty of obstacles. Um, what I could see could be a, a positive solution is that uh, bigger companies in this area uh, mentor smaller companies and help them get through their hurdles of, of you know, day-to-day challenges in business and also provide contract opportunity. It's good that you want to give money um, to the community, but also help the community earn money. Um, and, and that will be a more positive and more... Uh, economic uplift for, for black businesses in the community. I know technology has been an issue, uh, especially for the east side of Buffalo, and I would assume that would be an issue for businesses as well. Has there been any improvement on that front when it comes to uh, things like uh, access to uh, Internet and things like that? Uh, there has been some progress in it. I, I'm not keeping in tune with how much progress we've gotten over the years, but there has been, uh, you know, groups working on that problem, the city working on that problem. But for you and your your business specifically, it's not a, a huge issue? No, no. Most, you know, nowadays, you know, everybody, especially if you're already in business, it's a, it's a, it's a no-brainer that you have to be in the, involved with the Internet. Um, so... Now, but there, there are you know some businesses that does don't need support in those areas, but, but there's uh, I think there's bigger problems than just that. What about uh, just for you, uh, your life and business, uh, your company, American Rated Cable and Communications? Uh, what about trying to gather more business? I mean, 
do you face racism? Well, do you face racism when, you, when you're trying to uh, reach out for business opportunities? Well, we've been in business for a, a number of years, and there is racism, institutional racism in Buffalo, and it existed for years. Um, but we have been successful um, in, in getting business and growing. Uh, we're union electrical contractors, and what we did was, and uh, we got our, I would say, our good start back when there was the billion-dollar school project in Buffalo that had mandatory participation of minority companies. Um, so based on that project, we joined the union. We were the first African-American company to sign all three agreements with Local 41 at that time. Um and, but we had the help of a major company that helped us in a mentorship relationship um, to get through the hurdles of, of being, a, being able to work on a construction project of that magnitude. So I would encourage other big businesses. You know, you have businesses that are now throwing money at the east side, but from a business perspective, um, spend money with, with up-and-coming contractors and, and service um entities and help them learn how to make money, help them get through the hurdles that are out there on why they can't um, be million-dollar businesses. So that that sounds like a, an opportunity and a, actually a, a, a real solid solution, like you said, getting the bigger businesses to help and uh, guide along some of these smaller businesses. Because like it sounded like for you when it came to the school project, if you didn't have somebody kind of guiding you through all the, and I'm sure it's a very complicated process when it comes to accessing public money, if you didn't have that, you may not have succeeded. Right. And and we wouldn't have been able to participate. You know, the, the dream of that project was to see some black success come out of it. Um, there was very... Uh, I would say very little overall black success, but some companies did did get a good start, in which we were one of them, out of that 10-year project. Um, but there needs to be more incentives, and, and especially from private sector and the government, from all levels, of trying to um, help businesses in our community that, that want to be in the big game but need help getting into the big game so that they can be successful and feed their family and help the economy of the east side go up. So it, it, it would be a win-win situation um, because everybody would win. And, and what has to happen is, you know, your major companies, and I know a lot of them realize this, but they have to share their pot. You know, uh, Richard... You know, it, as I hear you talking and making, I think, a real solid plea about this, because I think a lot of people right now are looking for how to move forward, how to come up with solutions. So it's, it looks like you're reaching out here, uh, and we can most certainly repeat this before we say goodbye here in another 10 minutes, but uh, if somebody wanted to find out, if there's a big business out there that thinks that they have some expertise that they could help smaller businesses with, how do they get a hold of the Black Chamber of Commerce? Oh, the Black Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you can contact us on online. We have a, a Facebook. And why am I drawing a picture? WNY Black Chamber. Um, yeah, we can repeat. We, uh, yeah, we can repeat that. But again, yeah, go on Facebook and you can uh, do that search for WNY Black Chamber and uh, find out more as well, right. and perhaps right. message Richard right. for, with right. that. Go ahead. To me, what's more important? The, the, Whatever business you're in, you find out who are the top 
major companies in that business. And then you approach them, um, especially if they deal with government contracts that require minority participation. You approach them for the relationship. And, and they are in a position, because they have to work with minority and women-owned contractors, they, they're in a position to help you get through some of the hurdles. For example, just one hurdle is, is on a construction project, you have to pay your people every week. Um, but you don't start getting paid from the project at a minimum 30 days, if you're lucky. Mm. So, um, so your major companies can help the small companies meet their payroll until they start to get the money um, flowing from the contract. So, and, and a lot of companies, if they don't have someone to be in that position, they can't they can't get the contract. So, so and that's just one example of how your major companies can help the smaller minority companies. And it sounds like what you need there is some sort of line of credit. How are banks when it comes to that right, type but, of thing? But still, line of credit and all of that that costs you money. Uh, interest having to pay interest on something costs you money. That takes away from the profit um, that you that you try to get on the project. So the, the more the more things you have to borrow and get get credit on, that takes away from your profit because you you're going to you have to pay for that. Right. It does sound like so, uh, like you're making a, a good case here for minority and women-owned businesses to reach out to other businesses for this mentoring opportunity here. But also... And, and, it, and it can go the other way. The major companies, if they, they're serious about trying to help the black community and black businesses, they can approach the black businesses. What about when it comes to these government contracts? Uh, can You don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but to, can you give us an understanding of what you have to go through to, to uh, secure one of these contracts? Well, first, you have to get certified. You have to get certified with the county, um, city, or the state of New York. Um, both entities have 30% goals on participation on, on contracts and on, on services. So your first step is to get certified. Um, and, and on contracts that they require minority 30% goal. Um, the companies, the prime companies that win these have to sub out the minorities and women contractors to meet that goal, meet those goals. Um, and, and a lot of the trades, there are very, um, you know, the number of minority businesses aren't, aren't there, but there are some there. But in order for them to play the game, they could use the assistance of the prime um, who, who knows, you know, the ins and outs and can help. Whatever the shortfall of the uh, minority company, they can help them uh, get over those. So, I was if, if, if they're serious about helping this community, help this community make money, help help our youth learn skills that pay them to be paid, not not minimum wages, decent salaries, so they can give back to the communities, give back to the tax base, and, and everybody prospers. When it comes to good wages, um, those union jobs most certainly fall under that, don't they? Uh, the uh, you talked about how your con- your company uses union uh, employees. Just curious, yeah. ha- how uh, how successful has the union been in terms of uh, recruiting minorities uh, to uh, take some of those jobs? Well, they they've made efforts over the years. Um, I've seen 
see uh, the members of minorities increase. It, it can always be better. Um, but but also, uh, you know, folks have to be able to um, uh, want it and, and strive for it. Um, you know, the, the unions, and this is all of the unions, they can only allow so much apprentice folks in apprenticeship programs every year, and that's dictated by New York State. So there's only so many seats for minorities and women when it comes to setting up these apprenticeship classes every year. Um, and the struggle is to try to get as many of minority and women into these courses so that you build up the, the, uh, local, the locals with minority and women. Um, you know, and that's been, that's been, been, been trying to be improved over the past 10 years at least. Yeah, most certainly um, I've heard about that. And right. and to to that point, then just to, to follow up though, uh, are we seeing an interest in the black community for these types of jobs? Because, like you said, there's been we've had more than one story about the recruitment or the attempts to recruit and get people into yeah. these types of trades. Yes, the the one exciting thing that has happened over the past recent years is the Northland Training Center, um, and that's giving youth that um, that necessarily you're not going you know you don't you can come straight out of high school and learn some some electrical skills electronic skills that will get you gainfully paid so that's i'm 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 highly impressed with that program um but there needs to be more of it and meet and more involved not just being in the electrical electronic field but other other fields that that interest the, the the youth and that they can get the training to be successful in life, and, and from that, they will maybe want to become business people. You know, you start out learning the basics, and then you see, then you may, then you as you get good in your field, you you may want to become a business person in it, and 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 it, and it goes on and goes on. So you're listening. There, you know, there there's a lot of we. I've been back in Buffalo since 1990, and I've seen a lot of progress. Since then, but we still got a ways to go, um, and and we just now that you know the, the, our community is on focus, everybody needs to step up and do instead of talking, put your money where your mouth is, and 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 help the community come up. And don't, and again, the, you know, folks want to earn the money. You don't. Have, they're not looking for a handout. They're looking for opportunities to make money. And 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 have decent jobs. This is uh, Buffalo. What's and next? That, and that, you know, that 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 will be the fix for this community moving forward. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's not a short fix. It's a long term fix. So. You're listening to uh, Buffalo, What's Next? And we're talking with Richard Cummings. He's the treasurer of the uh, Black Chamber of Commerce of Western New York. And I, I found an interview, actually, I, it was your father who was involved with the uh, uh, Black Chamber of Commerce of Western New York. Yeah. And uh, the president. right, he's the president, and you know it's interesting. He he talked about uh, about how the the chamber approaches things, and one of the things that they have to do is act as a, as a watchdog to a certain extent, right? When it comes to these these government projects that are supposed to have a certain amount of minority uh, owned or women owned businesses uh, involved in these contracts, uh, is that something that still needs to be monitored? Of course, yes, because the government isn't perfect. They're they're, they are, even though they have the gauze, they still are flawed. There are flaws in their process. 
Um, we serve on advisory boards uh, to the city and to the county on minority participation. Um, and there are still instances where, where, where prime contractors are trying to cheat the system um, uh, when it comes to meeting the goals. So you definitely need, on, on all sides, you need improvement in, in participation and you need improvement in policing the process. Richard, I uh, just wanted to maybe move on just for a moment here. Another element about the, 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 the Black Chamber of Commerce has come out with as well, and this is maybe more historical, but in favor of, of covering the Kensington. That's, again, one of these projects. It's a big project. We've heard some talk about it. Does that still the case? I mean, do you see that as being a, a major improvement of, uh, of prospects for the east side? Yes, I do. I happen to serve on Rock, which is Restoring Our Community Coalition, and this project is will help uh, boost the value of the community. It will help correct wrongs that, that were started in the 50s when it was first built, uh, being built. Um, and, this will, and this project will create uh, over 900 jobs. It will create businesses. And it will create um, the value of that community going up. So I am definitely, we worked on this project for 12 years, and we finally got the finances to get it done, and it's time to get it done. But that's just one, you know, it's a little bit over a billion dollars that we have. That's just one pocket of of a billion dollars going to help the community. There needs to be more projects worth a billion dollars going down on the east side to bring the east side back to its uh, value before the expressway was built. Um, this this project, and I encourage uh, anybody to go to the rocbuffalo.org website and read the study that UB did. The, and, the, and the short of it is, no matter what this project costs, over time it will pay back itself and, and tax revenues um, and, 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 and creating businesses um, and creating employment. So no matter what the project costs, over time it will pay for itself. So and, and so with that concept, you know, some people want to claim why you want to throw over a, 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 a billion dollars into the east side. Um, and there's not, and that, and the question, the answer is, there should be more than just one billion thrown on the east side. It should be billions um, to, to bring back the community, because the value of the community was stolen purposely when that expressway was built. So, and one final question: We're down to less than a minute to go here, Richard. But just this is off of business, but just the shooting at Tops. What stands out for you in the aftermath? Goodness, the, the aftermath, and along with this shooting that we just had in Texas, the aftermath is that we. Am, I'm a veteran. There is no way in the world civilians should have access to assault rifles. Um, there's no way in the world someone that's not 21 years old should be able to purchase a weapon in this country. Um, so, and, and until that is seriously addressed, we're going to continue to have multiple deaths um, because there's too many, too many weapons out there in this country. Richard Cummings, thank you very much for spending time with us today. 
All right, thank you for having me participate. Richard Cummings with the Black Chamber of Commerce, 716-995-0622, or, call eight, or go to 836 East Delavan. Uh, this will do it for uh, today's show. Buffalo, what's next? We want to thank all of today's guests, as a matter of fact, for their time. Thank you very much for that and your insight, Reverend Julian Armand Cook, Dijon Hall, and, of course, Richard Cummings, who we just talked to right there. We want to hear from you. You can use the Talk to Us feature on WBFO and leave us a message or send comments and questions via Twitter or email. We'll be back again tomorrow. That's the promise that we have for you here at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN OLEM, and WUBJ Jamestown, or Western New York's NPR station.